Hello and welcome to MadeCast. This series is brought to you by HCMA Architecture and Design. I'm your co-host, Stephanie Pollock. And I'm your other co-host, Cody Johnston. Welcome to MadeCast. This is the fifth and final episode in our series. Made respectfully acknowledges that we are located on Treaty 6 territory, a traditional gathering place for diverse Indigenous peoples whose histories, languages, and cultures continue to influence our vibrant community, including the Cree, Blackfoot, Métis, Nakota Sioux, Iroquois, Dene, Ojibwe, Salto, Anishinaabe, Inuit, and many others. We would like to have a quick shout out and a huge thank you to our sponsors of this series, HCMA. RPK Architects, and GEC Architecture. In this week's episode, our final episode of Season 2, Episode 5, titled Communities, Good Design and Leveraging Our Grassroots Identity, we are here with Michael Rivest and Jonathan Lawrence. Michael Rivest is an architect and associate at HCMA Architecture and Design. He has been a past co-chair of MADE, that's us, and co-founder of the High Level Line Society. He's a father of two who somehow finds time to think about grand ideas for our humble city. Jonathan Lawrence is an urban planner who is active as the community planning advisor for Edmonton Federation of Community Leagues, otherwise known as the EFCL. He has previous work experience with both Kennedy Architecture and Stantec. He's an inspiring figure behind the scenes driving community initiatives. In this week's episode, we discuss how design shapes communities and humans being the focus of that design. Grassroots organizations in the city of Edmonton, such as the High Level Line and the Edmonton Community Leagues, social media, and how the engagement from the community and how community can impact current architectural and urban design projects, as well as gentrification and inclusive design in communities. Welcome to MadeCast. This is episode five of the second season. This this last episode of the second season, we're talking with uh, Michael Rivest, an architect at HCMA, and Jonathan Lawrence, the community planning advisor at the Edmonton Federation of Community Leagues. Today, we're going to investigate communities, how good design and meaningful initiatives as part of a grassroots movement are key uh, to creating beautiful communities, beautiful cities. So first off, my co-host Stephanie Pollock and I would like to ask both our guests, in what ways does good design make good communities? Jonathan, I'll start with you. Sure, yeah, no, I, uh, I'm always kind of hesitant as a planner or designer in these spaces to answer that question because I think there's such a history of architects and planners pretending they know everything. I mean, like we follow in the history of modernists like Corbusier and even like beloved figures like Wright, I know you went to school at Taliesin, um, who kind of made no small plans and in, in some cases really went into neighborhoods and communities and did some damage. So I think um, in short, I'm always pretty careful. Um, but in a, in a certain sense, I definitely believe that the design of our built environments has a really profound impact on our well-being. So um, when I look at good communities, um, I see some pretty critical indicators, and I think the city's on to something special with their 15-minute cities concept, um, which they've put in city plan. 
um, which is for, for listeners is our, our new municipal development plan, um, which the city's worked really hard on and is this new council is really tasked with implementing. So kind of the, the champion or spokesperson for the 15 minute city is uh, a gentleman named Car- Carlos uh, Moreno. Um, and he's he actually just won the Obel Award um, in Spain. And he, he kind of looks at how design makes good communities in a few different ways. So he, he centers his concept on ecology, proximity, and solidarity in, in design. Um, so, so he really looks at the participation of communities in creating good design rather than kind of this sense of us as designers or experts creating the cities that we want to see. So he has kind of three essential elements of good design in neighborhoods. So I, I, I kind of brought a note because I'm not going to remember them all. But the first is neighborhoods are designed so that everybody has access to all of their essential human needs within a 15 minute walk, bike or roll. So that's really key. Um, and, and it kind of lays a groundwork or a foundation for what a city should look like. Uh, the second is the rhythm of the city should follow humans, not cars. And I know there's lots of organizations in Edmonton, Path for People, uh, us, um, the city itself, that's really looking at how we can transition uh, into a city for people. So, the, And then the third, and I think this is a really important one, is each square meter should serve many different purposes. And I think all of these things don't necessarily point to specific design principles, but they speak to a way in which we can come together to create unique opportunities throughout our different districts and our unique neighborhoods. And it's really helped leagues in kind of imagining um, how, how they want to grow and how they want to see or d- respond to uh, the calls to action that we increasingly face. So, yeah, I'll, I'll kind of leave that for, for Michael. I'm on the planning side. Yeah, no, that's and I love I love how you frame it because um, I was, when I was thinking of the question, I was thinking in, in like my approach to design is always that, um, um, design is a vehicle. Like there, there's reasons why we use words like vessels, containers, um, instigators. Um, I, I, I always see design as how can it help facilitate and be a tool for humans, um, yes, it, yes, sometimes it's expressive and yes, sometimes it's sculptural, but at its core, it should just be serving. It should be making our lives better and helping us deal with some of these really crazy problems that we have in our world and, and will continue to have. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I often just want it to be quiet and simple so that we can just be better at doing what we're doing and we can be the color and the life and the animation and the character. And so the way you just described that in terms of neighborhoods, I really just see like a framework, like, and that's what I think good design does is it's the building blocks, it's the structure. Um, And so that we know that things are safe. So we know that things um, are well laid out and organized, but then there's still room for people to come in and add the character and the color and the life and the nuances that make one neighborhood different from another. Um, so it needs to it needs to it needs to set up the stage, but it also needs to be flexible enough so that it can change and people can feel ownership and people can feel pride, and and that then limits and reduces vandalism and and unsafe things and you know like public art murals are areas that are less vandalized and spray painted than blank walls even though i love blank walls and they can be really beautiful but you know it's it's things like that that make our neighborhoods um better 
one of the I'll jump in because I think that's that's a fantastic point and I think one of the things about recognizing and having these conversations about kind of community-led planning is going back to like the simplicity of the statement um, cities are machines or houses are machines for living right like that um, modernist sort of take on the city as this sterile environment where there's right and wrong answers. And I think our move in kind of the postmodern era or especially in kind of these conversations is that cities are really organic. They're living. They should, as, as designers and I think as, um, air quotes, subject matter experts, um, it's our job to create some healthy frameworks and some healthy outcomes that, that we think based on research and evidence, um, kind of promote well-being, um, but leave it really open for, for citizens to figure out what that means for them. Um, and I think really importantly, include voices that haven't been at the table in the past to to kind of make inroads and, and figure out what that looks like for their communities. So. Yeah. And I know we're going to talk about it a bit more, but I think that is the big change that's happening is it's now um, no longer the exception it's standard that, you know, more voices, if not all voices, as many as possible are brought to the table um, in, in these uh, key design moments. Yeah. Yeah. I think of, I mean, yeah, thanks Corbusier. <laughs> yeah. Like, thanks for, uh, thanks for calling us machines. And, and quite honestly, thanks Frank Lloyd Wright for inventing the suburbs pretty much. So that's all I can say about those great minds that set us off on our course where we're at. So now I'll kick it over to Stephanie. I think she's got a burning question. In what instances in in Edmonton in particular is architecture at its best, in your personal opinions, in terms for what it's doing for the community? And can architecture do this without good urban design? I'm going to give that to Michael because okay. it's an architecture <laughs> question. Well, and I feel like I, I might have touched on this already in my last one because um, I... I, I I'll repeat myself a little bit, but yeah, I really do think architecture is at its best when it's when it's serving people, and 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 this is where a bit my own kind of bias comes in. But like, I I want clean, simple, quiet design so that people can be the focal point and people can shine, and and it can be all about us and and make our lives better. And and it's recognizing all people. Um, you know, we've made such leaps and bounds in terms of universal and inclusive design over the last five to ten years that we're now recognizing that, you know, we weren't that good at including every voice and every perspective. And, and I'm sure there's still some we're missing now, but with the way the conversation's changing, um, I think we're going to just get better and better at it and it's going to be standard. Um, so, you know, when I think of community, I think of just people coming together. I think of ways to bring people together. And if anything, the pandemics just stress the importance for it. Sure, it's great that we have Zoom. And it's great that the pandemic didn't happen with SARS in 2003 when we didn't have Zoom and we would have just been isolated. Uh, um, but we're tired of Zoom and we know the value of coming together. Even us sitting here, there the, we the sum of our parts are greater than the whole. Like there's there's something good happening here, and you can feel it. And um, that's what I think of when I think of community buildings and, and architecture being at its best. And more and more, I think less of a uh, you know an infinite parapetless roof edge that is you know a, an amazing detail and you know technically. Um, 
mind-boggling. I think more about how do we bring people together and how do we help each other? Because, you know, we're there's things called atmospheric rivers. Like the sky is is just dropping rivers on us. Like we're we're in really tough times and, and we need to deal with really big problems. Yeah, yeah. So Jonathan, uh, on the from an urban planning perspective, do you think do you think that architecture is good architecture is key to a good urban design plan, or can a good urban design plan exist without that architecture that that capital A architecture with Michael's referring to with the the super technical detail? Yeah, is that necessary for urban design? Well, I think it's a it's a really pertinent question, and it kind of gets addressed in two ways in in the real world. I think when you're when you're able to design, and I've had the privilege of working with teams that are designing new projects like in Blatchford um, where you're really setting the stage and the planning does come before the architect or architecture by nature of the project right but I think um, really more fundamentally than that um, it's it's a bit of an interdependence of our relationship as designers right and going back to that Merino principle of every square meter should serve multiple purposes or kind of the common phrase of uh, the need for a mix of uses. Um, I think us as planners can set the stage for an urban space that is inhabited by all types of people at all different times of the day. And I think that would probably, and I'm speaking maybe on, on behalf of the, the architecture profession, but I think those are probably the most or exciting spaces to design in um, and give the highest possibility of success for those buildings, right? So I think, yeah, we can, we can make rules that say you can't have a door <laughs> more than 100 meters apart because those create kind of voids of human space. But I think at the end of the day, it's creating, creating kind of districts um, that are vibrant, that allow architecture to serve so many different purposes and come to life in a specific way. So, yeah, yeah I think yeah. that's my answer there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, zoning can only go so far, yeah, yeah. right? So. And I just want to jump in. I'm in no since suggesting design excellence isn't absolutely critical like i just want to make that clear because i guess it could be interpreted like you know um it just the the design excellence has to be in conjunction with the needs of the community and the people um and, and it has to, all of those design moves and the initial conceptual approach has to be rooted fundamentally in how is this affecting serving and and meeting the people's needs yeah i think i think there's an intersection there of of architects doing things that are quote unquote like too fancy and then therefore the budget gets blown for right. housing and you have to sacrifice 10 units to make your details you right. know that's 10 families that don't have housing so that's yeah it's kind of a an easy decision to make yeah and one last thing because I, I didn't really touch on the urban design part of the question but it, it just goes hand in hand and and i i there like just like our communities are changing the practice of architecture is changing the world designs changing and 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 more and more architecture is looking less at the boundaries of the wall or the boundaries of the project site and and it's just you have to be thinking um of all of the adjacencies all of the sight lines all of the connections to and from and it's it's happening more and more and and sometimes it's being um a bit mandated through uh, review processes or things like the Edmonton Design Committee that are, you know, focused on, you know, is this a safe 
uh, is this project in, in increasing the safety of the neighborhood and 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 so forth but it, i i do think there is a trend to look beyond just the building that i'm generalizing here that i think a generation ago there might have been a bit more of just um looking at the building as an object in the landscape and and being comfortable with that so now to switch gears to talk about the grassroots movements behind these urban design and architecture initiatives because you know now we've I think we've talked about the top-down approaches quite a bit, but to talk about some of the grassroots initiatives because that's that's the pride, that's the 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 respect pieces that we that we hope to get within communities. So what types of other grassroots movements have you seen that would be emblematic of this movement? Yeah, this is this is a question I think that's really exciting generally. Um and I'm seeing grassroots projects as everybody is kind of spawn nationally and internationally that demonstrates uh i think a lot of the strength and speed of this movement um and as michael said i mean looking at kind of climate specifically but more generally we're at the kind of weird moment of converging crises it seems in in the political realm the economic realm the environmental sphere so um more and more i think those challenges are being seen as outside of uh, a singular political realm um, in our case the city the, the province, the, the, the national governments can help for sure. Um, but more and more, I think academics and practitioners uh, are seeing that it's communities that have a huge role to play uh, in realizing kind of what our future cities will look like. So um, I think one of the most exciting movements that I'm seeing is at the smallest scales. So it's at the the block level, really, that the change is being made. So I'll point to two really exciting projects. Um, one is led by Shani Graham in Australia, and she was recently in Edmonton speaking about about neighborhoods, um, and she developed this concept called the eco burb. And and really at the at the heart of the concept is. Um, neighbors getting together to talk about how we're addressing all of those challenges that we face, um, whether it's resiliency at the block level. Um, one of the one of the greatest indicators of, of resiliency in the face of a crisis is neighbors knowing their knowing each other's names and maybe having a contact list or a database. And we saw that during COVID people kind of checking in on neighbors um, is a huge, a huge benefit with a relatively low cost. Um, so in, in, in Australia, they're, they're looking at changing the street to accommodate recreation they're looking at growing food together um, they're looking at um, just gathering to, to solve problems at the block level um, another kind of similar example um, and i think we're seeing a lot of similar but different examples um, one in victoria um, a shift collaborative it's called and led by stacy barter smith um, she's working on a program called Resilient Streets, which basically sets out a framework for, for neighborhoods to get together and talk about how they're creating resilience, whether it's um, getting together for parties with a purpose, um, creating emergency bags, um, or it's talking about shared infrastructure and resources like um, playgrounds and community gardens and shared tool libraries, um, all the kinds of things that I think are going to be required to both consume less, um, to move away from a dependency on vehicles for, for transport and move to that kind of 15 minute neighborhood. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a, that's a really big one for me. And I think these grass movement, grassroots movements, um, are moving us towards creating um, a social infrastructure of interdependence with each other. Um, and they're small, in, important impacts on our built form and on our consumption, but I think they're, they're really profound in the way that we think about design as a community, so. 
And do you think these community leagues are um, a good size or a good platform for citizen engagement? Like, do you think they have been developed in a way that does serve the community? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So I'll bring it back home. Um, I think our league system is a, a fabulous resource. Um, we have 163, as I said, off the hop um, and, and always kind of looking to add more as the city grows and matures and different leagues want to participate or communities want to participate. But it seems that, um, and kind of literature supports this, there's a great book by Kirkpatrick Sale called Human Scale that talks about like our ability just to relate to a certain amount of people. So I think our scale of the neighborhood is kind of by chance or by design uh, a really fantastic scale for that kind of grassroots social movement. So most leagues are around 1,500 households um, and they vary hugely. My neighborhood is 7,000, some neighborhoods are 500. Um, but it, it is a fantastic scale and we're working on a project right now with the North Glenora Community League um, with in partnership with the U of A planning program um, and we're basically looking at engaging the community to uh, develop a community-led um, student uh, guided I suppose uh, climate action lab so bringing together everybody th for the community in the community to ask questions around how we can decarbonize our neighborhoods um, how we can increase safety increase vibrancy and well-being um, and that scale of kind of 1500 to 2000 people is really a participatory scale like it, it allows people to feel like they have a voice or meaningfully have a voice um, but it's not too big that people don't see the fruits of their labor so um, to answer your question in a word, yes, I think there, there is a really a huge value in, in our scale of neighborhoods and leagues. Yeah, that actually might be, <clears throat> you're talking about whether it's by choice or by design, it might be the ultimate sort of grassroots solution. You know, these things just found themselves to be the perfect size. I don't know if, yeah, I don't know if they were designed that way, but I think over time, society's figured out that this is the size that we can't talk to each other bigger than this. So, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. It's, it's probably a good example of the principles guiding what happens. So, Michael, do you have any comment on, on community engagement from a community league type of thing or any other grassroots movements that you've seen and been inspired by or been a part of? Well, I can do a shameless plug uh, <laughs> for the uh, High Level Line Society um, that I think is relevant to this, so it's not just a shameless plug. But um, so I am a, a co-founder of the High Level Line Society, and uh, that's uh, in, in a really short nutshell. It's a, a, a non-for-profit uh, society that is uh, helping lead the conversation on repurposing the old CP rail line from White Ave to McEwen University that goes on top of the High Level Bridge. Um, and it was purposely created as a non-for-profit so that no one group could you know, uh, have complete ownership of it um, or, or, you know, try to dictate exactly what it needs to be. Uh, we knew that it was such a big endeavor that so many voices, so much engagement, so many kind of steps would need to be part of it to be realized that it, it would need this kind of neutral entity. Um, and it's been really well supported by the city of Edmonton. Um, uh, which is just fabulous. Uh, we, we know that there's some steps happening next year uh, through an upcoming project that we're really excited about. Um, but to the community question, because um, there's a lot of things that the high-level line hopes to do, you know, our, our kind of three main themes in it are um, 
our experience. So just giving Edmontonians and visitors a new way to experience the city. Um, movement, giving Edmontonians and visitors a new way to just get from A to B. So like a, a better way to connect White Ave and downtown. Um, but activation uh, is the third one and, and, and finding ways to um, take places in our city that people just pass through and assume are dead or void or not places and find ways to activate them to make our communities have more resources and more amenities so at its core it's really about connecting the communities that surround it and giving them uh, uh, more space to be meaningful and to um, I guess serve the residents of those communities and 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 you know it, it's the space is there like it, it just like it's this is as little hanging fruit as you can get um, we're not we're not um, uh, filling in ocean land to create uh, an island or something like that. It, it, it's right there. It's already connected to these communities. We just need to um, put in a little bit of infrastructure. But um, you know that. I guess I, I, I bring it up one because it's it it's it's in Edmonton. It's close to home. It's about communities. But it's also a um, you know it 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 simply started by just uh, a small group of people with an idea that did uh, uh, gain attention through social media. And, and I just think there's so much potential for other people with other ideas to, you know, kind of breathe some life, do some imagery, release it, and just see what happens because you just don't know how um, something's going to take off and affect uh, other people or, or turn into something on its own. So in, in particular with the high level line, it started out as an idea and then it kind of gained traction through social media. Can you talk a little bit specifically about that exact project and how that did yeah, come no. to a, the attention of the public? Yeah, like there was a lot of uh, factors, but one of them was um, it, uh, we, we were, uh, there was a, uh, a similar initiative that HCMA did in Vancouver called Harbor Deck where um, uh, HCMA created some imagery of what a public pool would look like on the north side of downtown near the convention center and just threw it out on social media just to start a conversation, just to see what would happen. And um, the, the High Level Line Society group, we saw that and, and really said like, wow, isn't that powerful? Like, why? what could we do to kind of start a conversation to light a fire? And we had already been talking about um, the top of the high-level bridge. We had been talking about what if the bridge that was taken down in the 90s over Jasper Ave um, at 109th Street was there to make cyclists and pedestrians have a safer experience crossing Jasper Ave because it's it's not the greatest experience right now. Um, and that really then um, uh, encouraged us to put some imagery on social media. Uh, and it was uh, uh, Michael Zabinski, who's one of the co-founders of the High Level Line Society. Um, he put a, an image on social media um, that ref that showed a photo of the top of the High Level Bridge and 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 referenced some of the imagery that we had done. And our previous mayor, uh, Don Iveson, um commented on that post and said, you know, maybe we should just pull the trigger and, and create a linear park. And it 
it started to get a bunch of attention. And, and that was really our kind of green light that, you know, we, we really need to develop a bit more imagery. We need to keep it loose. So it's just visionary and we're not being prescriptive on what this looks like. But let's just release some imagery and see what happens. Um, and, and we did. And it, it wasn't extensive. There was like seven images of how different moments along the line could look. Uh, and it blew up. It, like it blew up. We had uh, like seven or eight news companies, uh, media um media outlets uh, looking uh, for media releases and, and it really turned into something really big overnight that we had not expected you know that you know a few weeks before that we were um, walking it um, sketching ideas for it in in pubs having beers just casually talking about it just like we all casually talk about things with our friends because we're passionate and we care and we have ideas on how things could be better Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's really great to see, uh, obviously, thanks to Don Iveson, you know, we need those social media influencers <laughs> to pop in once in a while and make we things do. happen. It helps if there are mayors, uh, for sure. But these types of things, and this is this is a very difficult question, I think, a very difficult topic overall. Um, but these types of things make me think about, this is, this is what we all aim for as designers, to make safer, better neighborhoods. But there's this big scary word called gentrification that kind of tags along with all these community interventions and um, making our making our communities anew kind of thing. And so I'll start with you, Jonathan, but what do you think are sort of some of the risks with reshaping our communities and maybe accidentally forcing gentrification? And maybe specifically, does a top-down approach uh, versus a bottom-up approach feel different or result in a different form of, of gentrification? Yeah, I guess as the planner, I ex- I've come to expect this question. <laughs> um, but I think, I mean, it's a really good question. And I think it's such a difficult issue. And I think every planner from like Jane Jacobs on has tried to tackle the issue of gentrification and from different scales. I mean, Jacobs kind of was the grassroots champion, um, but there's been kind of attempts from and growing attempts to create affordable housing to kind of move away from a model of gentrification, however difficult that might be at a a city policy level. Um, The challenge that I really have is that it's so inevitable within our current kind of social and economic system, right? Whether it's the city or its grassroots, um, typified in the story of kind of artists moving into a warehouse district. You create cool spaces um, and how is kind of cool or desirable, um, how is that measured right now? It's it's in profit and right, so or it's in cost. So um, the challenge really is we have commodified housing fundamentally. Um, so those who can afford to live in the spaces that become interesting, become walkable, become uh, attractive, um, have uh, a strong community design sense. I mean, you look at kind of the, the the neighborhoods interacting with Michael's high level line. It's it's Oliver, it's Garneau, it's Strathcona. These are neighborhoods that are already difficult for a lot of people, kind of millennials, but also people who have been kind of historically disenfranchised by the housing market. Um, it's difficult for them to be involved in. So I think uh, gentrification's a real challenging issue. So um, to answer your question after saying it's impossible, 
um, is I think grassroots is really a way to make that happen. I think having communities that support um, sensitive densification, um, creating more opportunities for more housing, but also support for affordable housing, which is necessary necessarily top down uh in some ways i mean sometimes it's housing providers sometimes it's community development organizations sometimes it's the city um it's kind of a partnership between the grassroots asking and demanding some of those things that make neighborhoods more livable for more people um but yeah i, th I think i think without the grassroots it's impossible um so i'd say grassroots is probably one of the most important factors and especially within the league system and within my role, uh, I see a real shift in the conversation, recognizing that we need to create spaces for people. Um, we need to accommodate more and a diversity of people in our neighborhoods. And I think in the past, there's been frustration as kind of homeowners see affordable housing as challenging their way of life or um, bringing nefarious things into the neighborhood i think that that's really no longer um the the widely held consensus i think people see um, a variety of people uh, a heterogeneous neighborhood mix being really valuable in terms of well-being um, and also just in terms of the human right to housing i think people are more and more recognizing that that's an important uh, important factor so yeah there, there's kind of my answer <laughs> yeah, yeah. and how how can we meet or how can we reach young people about community engagement? Like you do talk about, you know, millennials. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a it's a good point. And I think it goes back to some of those systems questions that we're dealing with, right? Like um, I just read Naomi Klein's book, um, How to Change Everything, and she's a huge booster for young people. And she recognizes the existing momentum. Um, and I think more and more people do that, that young people are really getting involved, getting involved, um, in, in climate activism in housing activism. Uh, they're bringing a vitality to the conversation that kind of questions the status quo, uh, and questions the pragmatism of the past. And I think, um, our job as leaders and as, um, kind of, bodies inside existing institutions is not so much to include young people, um, but to reimagine our organizations in such a way that it brings them into the fold. And I think utilizing their energy, their expertise, um, their imagination, um, and I, I would kind of count myself on the edge of that young people. So I, maybe I'm not included in their parties, but perhaps I'm included <laughs> in their in, in their conversations is, uh, is just the ability to kind of think differently. And I know leagues like Oliver, um, leagues, there, there's leagues around that are, and, and more and more, there's kind of a intergenerational um, transition. So old, wise league leaders um, that provide a huge amount of leadership and institutional knowledge are more and more including young people in the conversation. And young people are joining our boards, joining the league, um, and bringing a, a huge amount of kind of a diversity of approaches to the way we look at action and community building in leagues. So I think more of more of that is awesome, um, but also letting them lead in a, in a lot of ways. Yeah. I guess it's uh, we can't expect everybody to have a TikTok account and, and do uh, do the TikTok dances. <laughs> I just, I'm, I'm, sh I'm shaking it. my head here. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even say it. It's I'm sorry, uh, Generation Z. I can't even say TikTok properly. But but I love how like um, I love the no bullshit factor. That's um, the up and coming generation is just quick to call things out and and it and it, like it 
I think it touches in the whole universal inclusive design aspect on like this, the smaller scale of like architecture, but it also then is the same kind of mindset when we're thinking of communities and, um, and, 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 um, back to my comment about, um, maybe less of an appreciation for the, the infinite roof edge detail, um, neighborhoods that have all ages of people in it. Like you'll see seniors and young children and people of different economic classes. Um, I, I, for me at least, those are the neighborhoods that are feeling complete and, and, and beautiful and wonderful. And it's the other neighborhoods that when you're in, it's like, this feels really sterile. Like I, I, I I'm not, enjoying this as much um it it's just catering to one group like there's something missing even though it might have a lot of these other check marks it's it's not complete and uh, i think just more and more it, there's an expectation that we need to be having everyone at the table in in all of these conversations which yeah. is great one, one thing that comes to mind and to tie it back to your question about social media is i mean all of those generations bring different skill sets and I think social media being a critical tool to galvanize support for a project like High Level Line. Um, I mean, there's grant writing that's required that a lot of the elder statesmen in neighborhoods know how to do better than I do, that's for sure. And I think young people bring a lot of skill in the social media environment. And I think also with that power of the tool of social media comes kind of the responsibility to facilitate healthy and participatory conversations and i think um a fluency in that language with within young people has really helped in uh creating opportunities for broader participation um for bringing more people into the fold because i think in the past and, and this is really changing quickly um i think a big indicator of participation in community events or community leagues generally has been home ownership and a lot of kind of younger people can't afford homes. So how do you bring them into the fold if they're not part of that homeowner group? Well, you bring them in the fold through social media, through kind of other channels of participation that are lower hanging or uh, less frightening to get involved in or where in kind of the COVID realm, you don't have to fear that you're going to be judged by your um the way you present your gender or the way that you can access a space if you're physically disabled. So I think that bringing in kind of different um, medias in terms of creating participation has been has been really important. Yeah, yeah. Accessibility on all levels is always going to be. And I think it's it's becoming more of a uh, we're becoming more aware of it. Definitely. These both of these um, comments actually make me think about young people as students. And, you know, now we have a, an urban planning school in Edmonton. We still don't have a school of architecture in Edmonton. Fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I cross it's, my fingers every day. It's, it's, it's in the works. It's we, coming. All, we all know it's in the works. It's but coming. Yeah, and, and, it, and it's, you know, it quite frankly might have to be a grassroots movement more than a top-down, you know, dean of engineering type thing. But we'll see how it goes. But, yeah, so I guess two parts. So the urban planning side... We have a school, and I guess I'm curious how that's affected young people in particular being involved with the city. But I'd like to start with the uh, School of Architecture and how we, we don't have one and how that affects the young people in our city. Does it, does it, do the young people in our city, architects or architecture-interested people, not have a place to go that's super obvious to go to have these discussions? Or Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's 
um, it's such a important question and, and yes, like the short of it's yes. Like, um, the, what a school of architecture does for culture, for design culture, for, um, giving small firms that can teach part-time an option to not be reliant on work, um, to keep, um, to, to not only bring people to your city to learn and study, but also to stay and to um, foster and mentor up and coming people. Um, it, it's just, it's so, it, it, it's, it's such a big part of how cities develop. And it's, it's, I, I don't want to do a Calgary Edmonton comparison thing, but like, uh, you, you know, I, I went to the UFC, so I lived in Calgary for four years and I really love Calgary. It's a beautiful city. Um, but you can just see going through the neighborhoods, all of the different, there's just so much more um, walk-ups and row housing and um, medium density. And, and it's not just recent, it's been there for decades. And and there's a lot of factors why, but one of them is there's there is just a stronger culture of architecture because there is a school of architecture. And it, 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 it really touches in so much of of how the city develops, what conversations are happening, um, you know, because when when city officials, when planners are looking to develop things, they have this forum of you know they can go to the institution and they can they can get another perspective, and, and you can do that in Edmonton too, but it's a little different when you're going to private firms that um, it may feel that they have an agenda or so forth. It's a little different when you have a school of architecture that you can go straight to. So yeah, it, it when the day comes that Edmonton has a, a school of architecture, like it, it's, it's just uh, going to be so impactful um, uh, on, on all fronts. Um, and, and, and I like we're, we're deserving of it. We're, we're a good size for it. Um, there's a there's more and more a hunger and a thirst for good design. Um, that like I I, I really think uh, it's kind of like when the when when they opened the LRT to um, Century Park, like it was at capacity within the first week, or and, and they had sold out all the parking spots. Uh, for the park and ride, and uh, like it, the same thing's going to happen when they open the School of Architecture. It'll it'll just be maxed out, and it'll be a thriving, active, great presence in in our city. I don't yeah. know if that completely answered yeah. it, um, I, but I, I I clearly you know I, I can't wait till we have one. Yeah, yeah. For, yeah, yeah. For, for Edmonton. I know. Uh, I'll just I'll toss it to you, Jonathan. But yeah, one quick comment. You, you kind of mentioned um, that we all have to ship out and then ship back. Yeah. Uh, and and you know I had this I've had this conversation with uh, Shafraz Kaba, who was the first guest on the first season of of the pod. And yeah, he he mentioned that it was actually kind of a bit of a silver lining that we all went off and learned from different people in different cities and came back and gave our city these different perspectives. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about my office and of all the architects in my office, uh, five or six of us, seven of us, I think we all went to different schools, you know, which is pretty cool. So we all bring a, diff- a unique perspective. And I think that may be one thing to to not lose sight of when we do sure. have a school. Yeah, no, it's yeah, a really somehow. good point. And I would hope that would still happen. Yeah. You know, um, I would, if it, if you, if I was studying in Edmonton, like when I studied at Calgary, I had a semester in Barcelona. It was so meaningful to um, contrast um, studying design, architecture, 
in Calgary and then transporting myself to Barcelona and, and, you know, asking some really big questions on why can't we do this? Or, hey, there are, there's a school group and seniors and all these other people all in one block. Wow, that's uh, refreshing. Um, so, but yeah, so I, I, I agree. And I liked Shafraz's comment and, and it, our, our city is, you know, just like Canada is the product of a whole lot of voices and cultures and perspectives. So are our cities. Um, but I still would love to see a school of architecture <laughs> in it. I, yeah. uh, so now to flip, it, to flip it over to Jonathan, um, we do have an urban planning school. Um, how, how has that impacted our city? And young yeah, people, no, maybe in particular. It's a good question, and I'm I'm a relatively young planner, so I was part of the first class actually um, at the U of A, and I know there was a ton of work uh, that was done by Dr. Robert Summers and uh, Dr. Sandy Agrawal in in kind of establishing that program, um, as well as countless others. And I know I know industry and kind of uh, I think council or at least city administration was also involved in supporting that, but um, I think. It's a, it's a, I want to jump in on kind of that discussion of diversity in terms of the experiences that people bring to the table from different schools and different cities. I think it's super important um, to have your question or your assumptions questioned, right? Like if you, if you kind of enter into your professional life having heard that biking in the winter is impossible your, your entire life growing up and then went to school in Edmonton and, and you may have kind of heard that there are different ways of assuming about the world um, but I think living it is, is super valuable um, in terms of the planning program um, there's a huge diversity of people and to that to that point of kind of the fear that maybe you'd lose diversity um, there's people from around the world coming to the planning program and I think that's a testament to the strength of the school um, but it's also a matter of our cities are really rapidly growing and we're urbanizing generally and I think there's no shortage of people coming in and providing a diverse perspectives so um, but one of the one of the really interesting strengths I think and talking about Shafraz who's a rock star is our design and planning and architectural world is actually really pretty small in Edmonton. And I think the the interesting strength of having a planning school has been kind of the ability to collaborate across sectors because I know kind of a ton of people in the private world. I know a ton of people and have great relationships in city admin. Um, I have great relationships with people in not-for-profit sector. So being able to call people up in different worlds with different perspectives and be peers in a way that is maybe different if you hadn't had a relationship through education and academia, um, provides a different level of collaboration that I think has been really positive because we are so interdependent. Yeah. Um, our, our fields cross over so much and whether it's uh, Mariah, who's doing a fabulous job at IDEA at Edmonton, um, or countless people in, in, in city administration or guiding uh, Edmonton's design committee, um, we all kind of talk and we have a language that's similar uh, and an experience that overlaps. Obviously our, our kind of experiences are different, but that overlap creates the ability to collaborate and create city building projects that are really strong. Mm -hmm. So I think that's been a, a really huge benefit of having a school uh, internal to the city. Yeah. And, and I think it's like um, when I think of Edmonton, I think of uh, due to our size, which is neither small nor large, um, all kind of organizations have um, at some point need 
to partner or there, there's no fear of partnering. There, there's certainly not an attitude that, no, we're going to do this on our own. Um, and, I, and I do think that makes us better because uh, like it, it's a bit of necessity, you know, and I think of MADE and I love MADE, but, um, you know, and I used to volunteer and, and help out with MADE, but we often were looking for partnerships with like the Works Festival or other organizations because we knew that we had limited resources and we um, and um, to get something done, we needed to roll up our sleeves and, and work with someone else and, and use the what they had to bring to the table. But it always added another layer that we wouldn't have been able to bring on our own. Um, and I, and, and I, I, I think that that only makes these conversations richer and better. Um, and uh, I think it's a great thing about Edmonton. And, and I think Calgary has that too, just because of the kind of size of cities that we're at. With all of that in mind, now thinking about social media and the speed of social media and just like how accessible it is or maybe how a really trendy image can get a lot of hype. Do you think those kinds of things will affect policy creation and implementation or like how do you think that yeah influences people who who have sway in the government to put those policies in place? I'll just I, I feel jump like off. you'll have more to say on this, but I'll just jump in. Like, I just love how um, there's still pilot phases and I love pilot mm-hmm. phases. Um, I like that the downtown bike grid was like a test phase, but we knew it was permanent. And of course, we need a downtown bike grid. Like, it's amazing. Thank you so much that we have a bike grid. Um, but it's almost like our pilot phases and you like there's a hint that something's going to happen or there's a bit of a media release and you can there's just so much feedback that can be almost real time and um, a litmus test to whether this is good bad needs revisions and changes and and I think for policy and, and Jonathan you'll be able to speak about it better but it's not an instantaneous process it's a slow growth you plant seeds um, it takes sometimes years and decades for for these to really come to fruition and um i just love how social media can can really give us some of that instantaneous real time um uh, commentary on on how this should change or develop or so forth but i'll let you take it over. no it's, it's 100 true one of the things i think i'm really excited about is like the ability of us as city builders to be iterative and fail fast and quickly and and kind of reimagine what we do um, and with communities as well participating in that iteration and failure um, I think one one really exciting um, I, I always think of the high level line um, in relation to its counterpart in New York which is the high line um, and when I think of that, I think of Jeanette City Khan, who was the transportation commissioner under Mayor Michael Bloomberg, Bloomberg in kind of the 2000s era. And she pioneered that sort of um, iterative design, whether it was painting Times Square to make it pedestrianized and putting plastic chairs out. Um, temporary infrastructure that's designed for people is really sticky. Mm-hmm. Um, it creates uh, opportunities for people to imagine spaces differently 
Um, and I think that's a really interesting way of bringing people along in the process of urban design, because whether it's architecture, whether it's urban planning or design, um, we have this fantastic privilege of going to school, um, hearing about what's happening in New York, Paris, Curtiba, um, all these, all these wonderful cities. Um, and I think given the privilege of conversation or the privilege of watching what happens when you design a city for people, look at bike lanes, for example. I mean, for the most part, we've had a huge outpouring of support for the downtown bike grid. Once people saw it and once people realized that it takes cars off the street and it makes traffic flow better at the end of the day, it allows you to have confidence that your kids are going to make it safely to school. So I think when people see these things, um, it's a it's a real opportunity for for learning and growth, and then they become champions. And I think iterative design or guerrilla tactical urbanism um, can be a really important tool. And oftentimes those things are measured by social media response. Um, sometimes they're measured more technically by by city. But um, yeah, it's fantastic. And I think that neighborhoods are really good at it by the nature of their scale. But the city's also working really hard on that. They have uh, a new program called Street Labs under their Vision Zero program. And I've worked a little bit with the Street Labs team. And they work with leagues directly um, to ask them a question, uh, basically saying, like, where, how do you see your neighborhood being improved through kind of the public spaces? So whether it's wayfinding or... Uh, utilizing vacant properties, um, all kinds of things like street bump outs are, are, are a good example to calm traffic. But Street Labs basically takes an approach of we put in a temporary measure in a neighborhood based on what the neighborhood wants and we see how it works. And that may influence kind of permanent infrastructure in the future. But it's I think it's a really exciting area of growth into the design community is kind of the temporary crappy plastic that we can throw up to kind of make change. Well, and, and during the pandemic, like just the city taking the initiative to like temporary close off lanes, mm -hmm. um, which was, it was just fabulous. And and it's not permanent. It's, it's a test. Let's see how it works. Like people are struggling where we're, we're, there's all sorts of um, concerns uh, of people being too close together. We need more outdoor space. The river Valley's never been used as much as it has been um but it so the city's able to experiment with that if it doesn't work we can switch it back but it also just gets people excited of like like for myself when i look at that i start to think well what else could be different you know this isn't permanent it it, it, it is malleable we should think of this as being able to change and what else could be better and and how could we start that conversation like that that's what gets me really excited and i think we really learned that through covid right i mean it opened up our eyes in a lot of areas to how quickly we can change yeah and i think uh the the temporary bike lanes are a great example and oliver is now um, working really hard to make that temporary infrastructure up on top of the riverside golf course permanent because it's proven to be so effective. So I think, yeah, it's, it's 100% right. And it, it also is an opportunity for the city to um, make quick changes and take advantage of the fact that they have an incredible administration right now. They have a council that uh, is really forward looking and has some great policy. So I'm, I'm really excited about the possibilities with kind of quick and dirty infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think of a lot of the examples that we've talked about, guerrilla, guerrilla style interventions, I think those are 
part and parcel with grassroots, but also having an, uh, uh, an agile city admin who's willing to take a chance and, and say like, okay, this is just a pilot project. This is just a test project. We can, we can handle the flack from essentially drivers, uh, most typically for a few months and then study, study the data and, and, and implement real change. Cause I will say that the, uh, by the Riverside or Victoria golf course, uh, yeah, Victoria, sorry. that, that <laughs> downhill stretch, I know as a cyclist, the River Valley Road, whatever's down at the bottom, is a great path. But like getting there, like no, like yeah. it's mm-hmm. so bad and it's completely dangerous having a three foot wide sidewalk where cyclists are expected to share the road with with pedestrians and and, and vice versa. And it's it, it was completely inappropriate design. And I think the city's recognizing it. And um, yeah, seeing that it adds maybe five, 15 seconds to someone's commute. Sorry. Absolutely yep. worth it. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, <laughs> it's so people don't die, and so people get out and enjoy the river valley. It's our it's our city's greatest asset. Yeah, let's use it. I know you mentioned at the beginning some sort of abstract ideologies of of you know bringing people first in the architecture and uh, those types of of ideologies, and you know considering community, considering people, not just trying to be a capital A architect and be fancy. Yeah. Um, so, in in what ways can we challenge architecture? to make good cities. You know, I, I think of things like the high level line and, and like the other project we've been talking about where a firm has come out and said, you know, they've probably been mulling over for six months or a year internally saying, Oh, this would be a really cool idea. And they just have to put out renders on social media. You know, I think of, um, I, I was talking to you about it earlier. I'm a North side kid and, uh, the Coliseum, it's a completely dead space now and people are talking about demolishing it. I think that's the plan. Uh, and it's really sad because, you know, from an architectural perspective too, it's a perfect circle. It's a huge perfect circle. I mean, there's just so many things that I, I kind of quirky, quirky and I love about it. Um, but really, I think there's a huge opportunity there being being right along the transit line uh, and things like that. And, and it might just take the right render, the right firm to step forward. So I know I, I, I know I am. Um, Took, took a bit of your time there with, with an example that's kind of personal and passionate to me. But how do you think architecture firms can, can uh, make good cities? Well, I think it starts with values. You know, so if you're, if you're not asking questions that are focused on improving communities and helping people, um, if you're not really kind of maybe taking a step back from the project brief or the RFP and saying, is this even what we should be tackling maybe there's something bigger here I don't think you're going to get there and 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 it is really competitive and it's a tough game and project schedules are getting shorter and budgets are getting smaller but you still have to take time for those really big questions Um, and it doesn't always have to change the entire city it can just be a small little thing that helps you know the 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 block you're on but I, I don't know if all of those questions are always being asked um and um like the example that comes to mind and it's it's i don't know if this is a a great as relevant an example as i'd like but it's also topical because city council and mayor are um voted uh to approve some rec centers uh with the budget that uh, was put forward in the last two weeks and one of them is a hcma and dub architects project um it's the coronation park sports and recreation center so that is a uh primarily a velodrome like that was the original um program for the project so velodromes 
typically, and I'm generalizing, but they're typically um, not community centers. They're, they're typically uh, facilities for elite athletes that, you know, um, you might have some multipurpose rooms or some fitness in there, but they're, they're first and foremost um, a building for a, a small group of people. Um, and so the, and, and I can't take any credit for this because this design started in 2013 before I worked at HCMA, but when the design for this center started because there was a strong desire to make it a community center, um, the, the in a, in a just simplistic explanation, the velodrome component, the, the cycle track, instead of it being at ground level and everything kind of revolving around it and the infield court in the center of it being this kind of isolated area, um, for this facility, the cycle track was raised up to the second floor so that the ground floor can be a quote-unquote traditional community center. That's where there's fitness studios. That's where there's a, we have a, a informal kind of court area that kids can play on. We have this big interactive social stair with slides and stuff. Um, while still allowing the, 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 the key program, the, the cycle track, to still exist at the second level and still meet international cycling regulations so it can still host events and so forth. Um, and, and it's not a huge deviation, but it, it, it's now going to be a facility that really can serve the community. And, and like I, my family and I live close to it. Like I, I want to go there to the gym. I want to take the kids to the children's indoor playground, but I also want to watch the cyclists or if, if I can, uh, get on the track myself, I'd love to. And, and, and I, and, and so, so I am, I don't know if it's as relevant as an example, but it, it, I think it's just looking at all the work we're doing and saying, how can this be slightly revised or how can we approach this a little different so that we are considering communities and people and, and making this um, for everyone. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate the humility in it all, but I think those are the like really, really important questions. I mean, that's first of all, asking if this project needs to happen, you know, those are really brave questions for architects to ask because it means no work or less work, which is terrifying, right? Because we, we survive off of work. So asking those questions is, is very brave. And I think, I think of Olympics and how Olympics roll into cities and build stadiums and stuff like that. And then the city's just whatever, just left with some, 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 you know, monuments uh, international scale things for their citizens and it just doesn't work so so even taking those precedents and and realizing it on the scale of a, of a simple velodrome turning it into a community rec center i think is um huge because it could have been a building that yeah it would have been a velodrome and it would have been exciting but it would have lost its use and then who knows the community might not have galvanized around it and and yeah but this is a way for the community to try and galvanize around a building so i think that that's a really smart move and I'm excited to see it. So, I am too. Yeah. I know I was a bit of an architecture um, uh, project talk, but I love talking projects. So thanks, Michael. <laughs> yeah, Sorry, that was a long answer. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's just asking those big questions and, and values. Like, um, you know, we need, like, even when I think of climate crisis, um, it's great to see a lot happening, but I, I still don't think everyone's on the page of that this is a big concern and and we need we don't need everyone having to do exactly the same thing but if we all understand and respect that we need to to do something about this and and then you know have it as in our value system we can all approach it 
in our own way and 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 hopefully make a meaningful difference and 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 I, and that's really what i hope comes in the next i don't know soon <laughs> like soon. decades yeah. like like we need it we really need it because um look at all the stuff that we saw in 2021 covid aside um just from fires to the sky dropping rivers to you know um heat, heat. heat yeah um like and we're gonna see more like next year we we don't know but we're, we're going to see more of it anyways time to smarten up I'll, I'll pass it over to Stephanie for a final question for Jonathan. Uh, so Jonathan, I'd like to ask you, what are, and I'm, you might only be able to speak specifically to your league, which is totally fine. That's um, all right. But <laughs> um, what are some current things that are going on in the community leagues? And um, if there's people in neighborhoods, where, where do they go to get connected? If they want to get involved, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Oh man, there's so much going on. I mean, <laughs> we're so lucky to have a hundred year history of leagues. Um, and I don't think people that again, to the point of haven't left Edmonton realize how lucky we are. I mean, even in Calgary, there's, there's sort of a community system, but it's not, um, given the same extent, uh, or given the same definition as our leagues have. I mean, kind of a, a long-winded answer, to, to frame this is one of the kind of foremost thinkers from the University of Chicago named Emily Tallon was recently here and she has uh, eight categories of a competent neighborhood or kind of in Edmonton we'd call it a competent league perhaps um, and maybe like I'll, I'll list them because they're worth thinking about in terms of how lucky we are in our league system so a great neighborhood has a name our leagues often have names. Um, residents know where it is, what it is, and whether they belong to it. Like that's something that we're lucky to say we do in Edmonton. Uh, it has at least one place that serves it as, as its center. League facilities, a, a community center with a velodrome on top. Um, these these spaces, back to Carlos Marino, of uh, every square meter serves multiple purposes. Um, they have generally agreed upon spatial extents, so people know where the boundaries are, whether they're physical or emotional boundaries. Um, people kind of can can take ownership if they, if they know the boundaries. Uh, the fifth one is it has everyday facilities and services, um, though it's not self-contained so it's part of a greater city um, but it has those 15-minute aspects of places to live work and play uh, it has internal and external connectivity um, i think this is a place where we have room for improvement and i see a lot of leagues really rallying around that call um, whether it's uh, actually now um, current Edmonton Public School Board trustee Julie Cusick, who headed up a bike lane project uh, in, I believe it was Queen Alexander, though she'll maybe get back to me saying that that's the wrong neighborhood. Um, but but it is it is something that communities are rallying around. It's how do we how do we um, push for better public transit, push for alternative modes of moving, and and leagues are really part of that movement. Um, the the seventh is it has diversity within it, or it's open to its enabling, and I think that's a that's another big one. Uh, more and more leagues are asking for how can we welcome people from the margins, um, whether it's leagues talking about a housing first approach to solving homelessness, or it's leagues um, actively asking for affordable housing that architects are, are putting together modular, uh, beautiful modular buildings that are supported by city men and um, some of the services in the city. But more and more leagues are a part of a 
community-driven process of integrating that. And one big factor of successful affordable housing is in community integration. It's being welcomed into those communities. And I think uh, citizens and leagues are doing a really good job of that. And then I think the last one, which is fantastically important in architecture and urban design and planning, is communities have a means of representation. Um, a means by which residents can be involved in its affairs and its ability and an ability to speak with a collective voice. And I think when we're talking about uh, community community projects, whether it's the kind of a dispersed citywide high level line project or it's a really concentrated block level tool library, um, having the ability to make a difference where you live, to shape the spaces that you exist in day to day, is hugely fulfilling for for everyone for for me it's why i'm involved in this sort of discipline but it's why i've also sat on so many league boards and given my time and seen people become passionate about those things so i think in edmonton we're incredibly lucky to have if not all eight of those uh, a solid portion and leagues that are working towards kind of uh, creating capacity in all of them so i think we're we're in an awesome position in Edmonton, and the FCL is uh, is kind of positioned to provide resources and capacity to leagues to to build on that um, existing strength. So, yeah, maybe that's if I can close it off. That's that's probably what makes me most excited about the future for Edmonton and community projects. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the the real hope for our futures is is. Yeah, I mean, I know I'm a renter in a community that I don't see myself in forever, and it's really hard to, to be engaged. So I guess even if you're not totally engaged or decided on your forever community, um, still get out there and, and do what you can for adjacent communities or any events going on or anybody that's looking for support. Yeah, I think the EFCL and, and all Edmontonians would definitely just look for anybody willing to give a hand. Let's go and make our city great and beautiful and livable and uh, nice. So... Anybody, if anybody has any other final comments, we can wrap it there. No, I'm, I'm just a huge fanboy of the high-level line, so I, <laughs> I'm happy that it's uh, Michael's here talking about it and hopefully pumping it up still with the new council. So, no, I look forward to all the things in the future for sure. Yeah, no, I just think I think there's never been a better time to get involved, you know, and, and I, I just think there's more opportunities. There's more uh, avenues for ideas, thoughts, words to be heard. And I, I and I am, we'll we'll see how it turns out. I hope I don't. Um, but like I, I think twenty twenty two has a lot of opportunity to really be a great year. Um, hopefully we can get through or find a new normal in this pandemic. But even just our new council, our new mayor, I think there is tons of optimism, as Jonathan mentioned, with them. And and I I feel like they're. Like this spring, summer, fall, there really could be a lot of activity, activation, people coming out, getting together um, that would really uh, showcase how great this city can be. Yeah. Yeah. If you're hungry for getting out, get out. (laughs) Okay. Thank you so much to uh, Jonathan Lawrence, Michael Rovest. Cody Johnston, Stephanie (laughs) Pollock. Thank you so much. Yeah. This is the end of uh, season two. We'll catch you next year. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Special thanks on this episode to Jordan Ast for the music, mixing, and mastering. The rest of the team includes Ankit Gongol, Tasina Ahmed, 
Cody Johnston, and myself, Stephanie Pollock. Thank you for listening on this second season of our podcast, and special thank you to all of our interviewees who made this season possible. If there are any topics or ideas you'd like to discuss on future pods, please reach out to MADE via email on our website, our Instagram, or other socials. We hope you've enjoyed our investigation into our series, The Digital Takeover of Design, where we ask the question if we're doomed or gloomed. I think it's safe to say, with the guests we've had and the energy behind these initiatives, we do have a bright future ahead. You can have a say in your community. Now get out there and do good. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.